I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, this is Chris and Sunanta Walker, and I'm here with our amazing editor. This is the person that fixes all of my blurbs, leaves some in because he thinks they're quirky and you've heard them all before anyway, but we're here with Joe Fusaro, who is also the host of Hysteria Radio. Joe, thanks for co-hosting this one with me. Hey, thanks for having me back, and it's good to be on MHNR again. Yeah. And we've got a guest that has already been on who was interviewed by the lovely Melanie Van, Dr. Brian Quinn. Thank you so much, Brian, for coming back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Now, you have a book called the Depression Source Book, a second edition, I noticed, because right. how many editions do you need for depression? Like a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I would I would go up to a thousand, but they won't let me. So that's what the right. publishers that's the publishers' decision. Right, and then you also did a book for Wiley, concise guides uh, in mental health about bipolar disorder. And I have to say, bipolar disorder is by far the most discussed mental health disorder on our network, other than narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> Oh really? Well, I, I, yeah. I, I, can combi- I can help you combine those two if you want to talk about Donald Trump. So. Oh hey, I have no problem having that discussion. We're just going to have fun today, and uh, this okay. is a follow-up to the interview that you already did. And um, and the reason why we have a follow-up is a. Obviously, we need to talk more about this. You have a great personality. You told me before I hit record for this show that you'd rather have me call you Elmer Fudd, um, which right. is fantastic. <laughs> well, that, and, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't supposed to be repeated, though, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we need brevity. We're t- when we're talking about depression and bipolar, man, do we need some brevity, um, which is great yeah. because, yeah, if we're allowed to laugh about it because we're in the field and we struggle with these things too. Sure, sure. But I know that um, Joe specifically, since he edited that show, he came, he always gives me editing notes and you know they're wonderful. And then he had like a bunch of paragraphs about your show. And I was like, okay, 
that was a good show because he's very well versed in this. So, um, Joe, go ahead and start with your questions and then I'll um, I'll pull out some of the others that we had from listeners. Yeah. And uh, and before I want to start, I just want to say, yeah, I was even nervous about this show because there's usually no brevity around the, the right. topic of bipolar. So I'm glad that I'm at a point in my life where I could talk about it lightly and yeah. not like it's a like a life sentence anymore. So thank you guys for allowing me to do this show today. I guess my first question is, and one of the things I never wanted to do when I started doing my show was bring up other people's struggles, you know, people from the news or, you know, people, musicians, actors or whatever. But I just sure. I saw something a couple weeks ago and um, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to sit here and judge them or anything, but with the whole Kanye thing at the White House. And right. I, I was watching that and it was like looking at me 10 years ago and it was uh you know, I saw I saw the whole world kind of tear him apart over the things he said one way or the other, relating it to politics and morality and all these things. And all I really saw was like a guy that was that was struggling bad. And and it really hurt me to watch what went on for the next few days. And I guess my question is, you know, I've seen it from the side of the patient, and now I see it from the side of somebody who tries to get others help. How can you get that person help when they seem like they're teetering on like mania, maybe heading towards psychosis, and they just they don't want to face that they have a problem? Because I was there, so I you know I didn't want help. I didn't think anybody was right. Sure. I thought I, I was the only one that knew what was best for me. Like, what are is there anything you can do? Um, let's see. Well. Yes, it, but it depends on the phase of the illness. Um, it, it, when someone is manic or even greatly hypomanic, uh, especially if they teetering on psychosis, um, it, it's very, very hard to make much headway in terms of helping the person see that they have an illness. Uh, first of all, they don't feel ill, uh, especially if you have euphoric mania. And the irritability that often goes with the very uh, high phase of mania uh, is a, is defensive as well, and that it it sort of feels like everyone else is being irritating, and that's why you're irritable rather than the fact that you're just irritable. So it, to shorten that up, I guess it, it, there's very little insight that manic people have into the nature uh, or even realizing that it is an illness. However, I mean, most people go for help when they're depressed. I mean, think about it. When was the last time any mental health professional had someone come to them and say, listen, I'm, I, you know, I'm full of great ideas, tons of energy. I don't need any sleep. I'm all jacked up sexually. Please help me. Yeah. You know? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. People yeah. go for help. People go for help when they're depressed and they have insight into it at that point. Um, and that's the point where you can intervene the most. When someone's manic, usually the only thing that can be done is they get dragged into the hospital and, and medicated until they're not manic. It's, it's very hard for families to intervene at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's exactly what happened to me is I think it got to a point where they were like, well, he's dangerous to himself, you know, because of the way he's acting. And then, you know, right. police or EMT would have to bring me in. And uh, Right. Right. I guess what I'm 
I see this stuff happen. I even wondered that watching Elon Musk um, do the Joe Rogan show and some of the things that he's put out on Twitter. Same thing with Roseanne Barr. Um, same thing with Donald right. Trump, although I don't right. have much sympathy for him um, for other reasons. But I, you know, with the advent of social media, we're, you know, that that stars are less stars. Uh, let's see, people who are more well known are less right. controlled by their publicists. They have direct access to their fans. And, and in one way, that's good. And in other ways, when they're dealing with a mental health condition, it can be not so good as we've seen. So yeah, right. I wonder where the line is with education around this. I think it needs to be talked about. And now Elon Musk was smoking uh, marijuana too. So that added to it, but he was doing oh. other things um, as well. So I oh. wonder like, what should the conversation be? Or what do you see the conversation should be when we see these things happen where those of us in the field go, Oh, that's mania. You know what I mean? Right. Well, part of the part of what makes this hard, I I, I believe, or I think it's I think realistic, is that there's such a wide variation of the expression of this illness. In other words, it's on a it's on a spectrum. If you get enough of the bad genetics and you get it, you get those genes turned on by early bad early life experiences you know you can wind up manic psychotic and hospitalized if you get some of the genes that confer for drive energy uh, risk taking and you have a fairly benign uh, environmental you can wind up president of the united states or you know in the middle <laughs> in the middle maybe yeah. robin williams I believe right. it. I or totally Elon know. Musk running a yeah right yeah or or um, you know the fellow who founded CNN Ted Turner I, I mean right. there's this there's this connection between creativity uh, humor risk taking and madness um, that's not appreciated and that it makes it very hard for people to um, to, to recognize. Um, when someone's manic, they're obviously ill. They often wind up hospitalized. When someone's hypomanic, that is, they're, they have increased energy and drive, but they're not obviously ill, you get a lot done. And when you have what's called hyperthymic temperament, that is a lifelong propensity to high energy, drive, risk-taking, and typically a decreased need for sleep, like Donald Trump has. He always talks about only needing four or five hours a night of sleep. Um, then, you know, that that's all the way over to the other side. And then that, that shades over into normal enthusiasm and exuberance. We, we know that these, these genes um, uh, confer for one end of the spectrum or the other. So, the education has to be beyond, well, bipolar means you're manic. Because very often people will say, well, I can't be bipolar because I've never been manic. And it's sort of like saying, right. well, it's sort of like saying I don't drink every day so I can't be alcoholic. Mm -hmm. it's, it, or, or my blood pressure is, you know, 135 over 80, so I, I can't be hypertensive. It's all on a spectrum. Right, right.
And I, I yeah. think maybe having money and people like a team around you saying that you're okay might help that where I didn't have money or a team around me saying that the things I was doing was okay. So it was yeah, like, but you know, and you know, Joe, even with that, I mean, even with that, we see, don't we see uh, people with money that are, you know, there's so many components to that piece. They don't listen to their team. They fire people. I mean, they're the one who are bringing in the revenue. Britney mm -hmm. Spears, you know, her father had to come in and take over. And, you know, so it's like even with the money, um, the that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to actually help that person uh, because it, uh, it might help them keep the job that they have rather than right. help them, you know, get help is what yeah, I'm saying. Like, if there, yeah, if there are people around them though, too, that are, you know, in it to, they don't really care about that human being. They care about the revenue machine that they are. There's that component too. You know, maybe a little bit of their ma mania helps uh, with their career. And so they want to feed that. I mean, there's so many pieces of this. Well, see, the, the, the thing that's interesting is that, I mean, to me is that there are positives. There's a balance of positive, positives and negatives with this kind of temperament and shading over into hypomania and then mania. Um, yes, when you're hypomanic or you're hyperthymic, that is when you're episodically energetic or you're chronically energetic as part of your baseline temperament, you get a lot of things done. You're, you take risks. You move things forward. Uh, you're an action-oriented person. And that can all, especially in our in our culture, that's that's very valuable uh, and it's valued. The dark side of that is these individuals uh, often have uh, a certain volatility, irritability, and impatience. For them, everyone is too slow and too stupid, and they often right. leave and they they often leave interpersonal wreckage in their wake while they're creating successful business enterprises. Right. Um, you know, I mean, if you look, if, if you if you look at any high-powered executive, um, most of them have a, a combination of drive, energy, combined with the impatience and irritability that rubs some people the wrong way and, and makes them sometimes literally feared. And I think a lot of times, uh, I mean, it's absolutely possible for someone to have bipolar disorder who is also who also has antisocial personality disorder. That is certainly highly possible. But I think sometimes uh, or often even people that have bipolar disorder, especially men, are unfairly diagnosed by the public as also having antisocial personality disorder um, and which isn't fair and you know that is why we have people that actually know what these diagnoses are and um, you know can make a clinical assessment but um, but that happens a lot I have a lot of mostly of my male friends not Joe of course he's like about as zen as um, as, as you can get as a as a uh, what are those those uh praying mantis that's joe like totally zen which i know took a lot of hard work you know to get there but but other friends of mine that have um really severe bipolar disorder that they're managing well with medication boy they have been accused of you know being a sociopath at different times in their life well plus you mix in 
um, I, I, Joe, I don't know if this was ever something you had to struggle with, but you mix in the alcohol and the drug use. Um, you know, alcohol is not known for improving people's judgment um, or sensitivity to others. Uh, you know, then you can get some real anti-social behavior. Or the other thing that you see people labeled as is narcissistic. The problem with narcissistic is that it doesn't it doesn't fully explain the temperamental traits that you see. For instance, narcissism doesn't explain Donald Trump's um, need for four or five hours of sleep alone uh, right. as his baseline. The concept of hyperthymic temperament, which is much older than narcissism, uh, really, really does does fit him. He's successful. He's impatient. He likes things his way. Um, and he doesn't he doesn't book a lot of dissent. Um, he's very driven. So um, that, that's the other personality disorder I get. I see get mentioned along with antisocial, and of course, then we have borderline thrown in there as well. So, right. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Right. Yeah, that's a whole other. And that's a that is one that I have found. I've had different people come on, talk about um, borderline. And really, it was a, it, it, a couple of um, psychiatrists and really make angry our listeners that have borderline. And so, of course, I immediately did a show with a couple of people that have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and um, to kind of balance out <laughs> and show, you know, let's not just uh, throw these people out and say they're horrible and whatever, you know, there's much more tempered um, conversation back and forth. So that's one sure. that gets a lot so much stigma too and that one from what I have heard because I'm not a clinician from what I've heard from so many clinicians that don't have the stigma around it because there are plenty of therapists that at the minute that they think that their client is borderline they're like I'm out I'm not going to treat right. you I don't want anything to do with this um, and and listen some of them have had reason that I understand uh, why they would do that their personal safety was and their license was uh, right. was called into question but but it's it's actually the one that's easiest and I don't say that meaning it's easy to see improvement to cure to to overcome Whereas narcissistic personality disorder, from what I hear from our experts, is that that is next to impossible. <laughs> mm, mm. So what well, are your if they, on that? If they if they if if they have uh, you know an underlying mood disorder, 
um, then it then it's a little bit easier to treat if you you know soften the rough edges mm. and the emotional and the emotional overreactivity um, with the right kinds of uh, medication, typically mood stabilizers, atypical antipsychotics. Um, it, it this brings us to the whole issue of of how to how to diagnose and why this gets difficult. Um, most, if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Bible of the American Psychiatric Association, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, most of the diagnoses, virtually all of them, are made on the basis of a list of symptoms, and that's a very, a very short-sighted way of making a diagnosis because symptoms are in common to a lot of different disorders. In other words, let's use an analogy. If you go to your doctor with a fever and a cough, he's not going to diagnose you with a fever and a cough disorder. He's going to say, <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what illness do you have? Pneumonia, bronchitis, COPD, tuberculosis. They could explain a fever and a cough. Now, it's in psychiatry, we don't have that, that many easily di um, differentiated illnesses, but but uh, bipolar disorder is one of them. And if you mm -hmm. get beyond, and borderline, if you get beyond symptoms and you, you take time to look at family history, uh, people with bipolar disorder uh, often have very extensive family histories, not necessarily of bipolar, but of depression, explosive tempers, oh, yeah. you know, just difficult temperaments. If you look at family history, course of illness, uh, in other words, early age of onset of depression is a marker for bipolar depression. If you look at their response to medication, if you get beyond symptoms, it's a lot easier to sort of sort things out. But that's often not done these days. It's all done on the basis of, well, let's see, you're distractible, so you must have ADHD. Well, guess what? Right. Distract, just distractibility and forgetfulness are cardinal symptoms of mood and anxiety disorders. Um, it's not diagnostic, but that's the way it tends to go. Any, so any kid with, who's distractible gets a diagnosis of ADHD and a stimulant. Anyone who's got symptoms of depression gets diagnosed with depression and gets an antidepressant. It's a very, very poor way to do diagnosis and treatment. Mm. For me, that's why genetic testing is so vital. I, I, I've got, I, I just did one that you'll find interesting, and we can talk about it offline because I've told my listeners I'm not ready to talk about it on the air yet. But um, it was fascinating to me to see what you know what is going on with my genes. That this is right. you know this is what's my, my neurobiology, my physiology. I'm probably using the wrong terms because I'm not a clinician, but it was fascinating to see these genetic markers and go, oh my gosh, for some of those things with the childhood I grew up in, this is like mm -hmm. pouring fire, uh, uh, gasoline onto a fire. <laughs> sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what, one thing your listeners should know though, what I'm not sure it's what you're referring to, but th this is coming increasingly common where uh, uh, psychiatrists and nurse pra practitioners will order these genomic tests to determine which antidepressant your body is most likely to metabolize properly, mm -hmm. which is most likely to work. One thing about those tests that 
often is not realized is that it tells those tests tell you nothing about whether the diagnosis is bipolar or unipolar right. depression. It simply says which antidepressant is your body going to metabolize properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just it just doesn't touch on that issue. So listeners should be careful about those right. tests. So. Yeah, it's a guide. It's not the, you know, biblical reference if if you're, um, you know, right. if that's your thing is the Bible. <laughs> we have people from all right. all religious backgrounds that listen to the show, but right. yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um Joe, I I've cut you off twice, so I know you have more questions. I guess uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on that you spoke about earlier, you asked me if um, alcohol was a problem when I was going through my bipolar, uh, what do you call it, situation, <laughs> my bipolar yeah. day. And uh, luckily for me, alcohol was never really a problem. I, I may even be allergic to it because, you know, I was always the type that one or two drinks and I'd have a migraine for like three days after that and I'd be sick. But another thing that, uh, maybe exacerbated my whole situation was I was diagnosed depression and general anxiety disorder and ADHD for yeah. most of my twenties. And yeah. I was on meds for all three of those things. And it would work for about six months. Uh, right. Every time, every time for about six months, I would be like, wow, I feel great. Everybody around me, friends and family are like, wow, he's, you know, he's got his job, he's he's going back to school, he's doing good things. And then I think, you know, from taking a prescription amphetamine in the morning and then taking a benzo at night and then having the, the antidepressant, it would just, after six months, it would send me into like a whirlwind of emotions and manic. Yeah. And, you know, I would yeah. lose the job, I would drop out of school, I would move across the country and... Um, I think it took until I was about 27 until they said, oh, he doesn't have these three separate diagnoses. He's got just bipolar. And actually, during one of my hospitalizations, it was schizoaffective because I had uh, the mania and psychosis on and off for so long. Sure, sure. Well, Joe, your your experience is uh, actually pretty much the norm. Research has clearly demonstrated the average length of time between first symptoms and accurate diagnosis is about 10 years. Mm. And and people normally see up, uh, about four mental health professionals, including psychiatrists, for those 10 years before the diagnosis is accurately made. And guess what people are treated with during those 10 years? Stimulants and antidepressants. And again, you put your finger on it exactly. the 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 problem is is that is that clinicians tend to equate symptoms with diagnoses. They treat things symptomatically. If you're distractible, you get a stimulant. If you're depressed, you get an antidepressant. If you're rageful, maybe you'll get an atypical antipsychotic. But the point is that's so critical with bipolar is. All those things are manifestations of an underlying disorder. And if you treat bipolar disorder properly with mood stabilizers and atypical antipsychotics, sometimes thyroid medication, um, people get better and they stay better. It's often not appreciated that if someone with bipolar disorder is depressed, antidepressants have been 
demonstrated to be ineffective in preventing new depressive episodes. And in some people, maybe like yourself, Joe, they they worsen the course of the illness or they cause more cycling. Um, but they, they clearly are not mood stabilizers. Uh, and, and this is just such a common, common uh, mistake that clinicians make. Yeah. And uh, well, so when I was first hospitalized, they gave me Haldol injections for about a year, which which was terrible. It was the worst year of my life um, with or without <laughs> mental illness. You know, it was it was the absolute worst year of my life. And luckily after that, um, I found a doctor that was really convinced that it was just if I could get my sleep back together, you know, then maybe I could lower the Haldol. So I got on Seroquel and I still, to this day, take Seroquel XR mm -hmm. at night. And as oh. long as I sleep, you know, eight, honestly, sometimes on the weekends, it's nine or 10 hours, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I feel good as long as I get that sleep. And, and I know that if, you know, now I have, you know, I have like this radical self-care list, you know, of, <laughs> You know, which I could go through that later awesome. if we have time, but it's, uh, it's pretty, when it comes to it's pretty that, intense. Yeah. Like I, I have to do a lot of things every day to, to feel good. And, um, you know, mm. from, from sleep to making sure like positive input when it comes to news, music, movies, uh, eating healthy, going for walk, meditation and yoga. I mean, my list goes on. <laughs> I could probably do a whole show about that. So I guess I got mm. to a point I had tried a mood, is Depakote a mood stabilizer? It is. Okay, I had tried that once and I had had some issues with like tachycardia and blood pressure, so I had uh -huh. to come off that. But I, I guess I'm lucky where as long as I take the Seroquel every night and get my eight hours of sleep, I've, you know, fingers crossed, it's been five years now without any, you know, serious Good. symptoms. Occasional, Good. you know, I still, I, I'm sure I still have tendency to be, you know, a little bit more depressed in the winter, you know, is because of this change of seasons. And I still have a little bit of anxiety, but as far as mania and psychosis, I haven't had anything close in the last five years. So, well, that's, that's great. And part of it is, you know, you're touching on some things that beyond medication that are really critical for long-term stability. Um, just touching on the one thing about sleep, for instance, or, and the associated issue of exposure to light. Uh, the National Institute of Mental Health um, has sponsored some, uh, well, it was a single case study, and then there have been some case series after that, showing that if you have people with rapid cycling bipolar disorder or who are, you know, have a lot of irritable mania, and you, you don't treat them with medication, but you just, if you can get them to do it, Enforced darkness in bed rest um, really stabilizes people's moods and this illness quite well, all by itself. Um, yeah. So that that's that's cir it's called circadian rhythm integrity is something that's um, often overlooked as well as as an element. Um, the other one being light. You know, for for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings. We we went to bed when the sun went down, and yeah. we came, we got we got up and we went outside in the sun during the day. That 
is very powerfully uh, stabilizing. Now we tend to expose ourselves to bright light at night and sit in dimly lit environments during the day. Um, so, and, and even diet, there's been some research showing that the Mediterranean diet, high in, in you know, fish and, and olive oil and vegetables, um, the Mediterranean diet is, is, is helpful for people with bipolar disorder. So th there's all these non-pharmacologic approaches that are equally as important. So it's good you touched on that. You know, that's, that's so funny because the four days that I was without power, right. um, I get, I get irritated. I'm on my, obviously I've run this whole network, so I'm, I have to check my phone and whatever, but I, it also is a problem, but it was so, I, I actually, um, by the second day of no power and, you know, as it started to get dark, I was, I felt so good. Yeah. I just went to bed right, right. <laughs> and woke right. up with the sun and I thought, man, I just want to go live in a yurt with my horse and not yeah. deal with all of the, and I have cut out, like I barely go on social media, like barely I've cut out so many of those things and now I'm thinking you know what I am going to turn off all the lights as it starts right. to get dark and I'm going to that is going to be my bedtime practice because it make and, and I learned this you know Joe you've heard this from Dr. Meyer you know he talks about how um you know your your serotonin and all of your happy brain chemicals are what are building up while you're sleeping so it makes sense right. that if you right. get extra sleep Oh, yeah. thing. And well, I think you, you need time to repair too when you have yeah. a mental illness. Like your body needs a little bit more time to repair than the average yes. person. Like Again, yes. six or seven and run fine the next day. I, I have had um, a couple of examples of young people who are um, depressed with racing thoughts, agitation, irritability. They're in so called. You know, depressive mixed states where they're depressed, but they also have some some manic symptoms mixed in, like you know, accelerated thought processes and whatnot. Um, I've had a few of them in my practice who have gone um, hiking uh, for a week or so, and when they come back, they are so much better than when mm -hmm. they left. Why? Because what do you do when you hike? You get up when the light comes up. You you go out into the sun, you exercise all day, you, you, you tend to eat moderately, burn calories, you have social interaction, you rely on your other fellow human beings, there's no bright light at night, there's nothing to do at night, it's cold, you want to go to bed, you're tired, and that sort of enforced circadian rhythm, integrity, I find really helps. Yeah. Yeah. We need to do a whole so head, show head, so, about so, that. So, so, so head off to your yurt. You'll be much better off. <laughs> I know. I'm. I really. I mean, you know, I don't need to. The, sorry, listeners, not that you want to know this, but I really don't subscribe anymore to the whole women have to look a certain way and get our nails done and all that stuff. I'm like, I can go four days without with doing a GI shower, and I'm just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd fit right into the backpacking culture. Although, I have to say, when I do my nails, I feel much better. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, this has been phenomenal. We need to, you definitely, I hope you'll come back on again because there's so, I have a thousand more questions, but I know we need to close up the show for today. And we're definitely going to do some uh, with you about some of the other personality disorders that are out there. Okay. Well, but, I would love uh, to. Yeah, please tell our listeners where they can find out more information about you. Okay, um, so I have a website, brianquinnphd.com. Um, I never look at it. I never change it, um, so it's a little <laughs> boring. But if it's your first time, um, you can start there. Um, if people have questions, um, I, I like to get emails. I feel kind of you know, forlorn if no one ever contacts me. So, you know, if you if you wanna if you if you have questions, B Quinn ten. That's B is in Brian Quinn Q U I N N and number ten at optimum dot net. O P T I M is Mary U M is Mary dot net. Uh, I'm in uh, I'm in New York, uh, Long Island. Um, I do phone consultations for people who are stuck. Um, usually they're mistreated with antidepressants uh, or stimulants. Uh, I work with families, with people who, who are stuck. Um, you can call me 631-424-5042. Um, please feel free. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And Joe, yeah. thanks for doing this one with me. Well, thank you, Kristen, and thank you, Dr. Quinn. I, I just want to say quickly, um, for people that have you know, been hospitalized and people with bipolar, or schizoaffective, or whatever brought you there, um, it's, it's really easy for us to have a fear of doctors when we yes. get out. And to have this conversation with you, even, you know, it's been five years since my last hospitalization, 10 years since my hospitalizations were really bad, it really helps heal, you know, a part of me that that still has a little bit of like, you know, fear of just being honest with somebody. And, and it, you know, I think uh, something to take away from this interview is that if you're honest with your doctor, like the whole process goes faster. And, and if you don't like your doctor, there's, there's good ones out there. So keep trying. And, right. Uh, so thank you both for allowing me to be a part of this conversation today. Absolutely. And thank you so much to our listening family for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight. Good boy.